Cultivating Place is proud to receive support from the American Horticultural Society, celebrating 100 years of trusted, high-quality gardening and horticultural information and community since 1922. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. As we near the close of a dry, dry season in the generally dry climates of much of the U.S. West, this week Cultivating Place has the first of a two-episode focus on the inspiring beauty of dry gardens and the many plants and people who love them. We start off this week with some high style in dry gardens in conversation with garden designer Daniel Nolan, owner of Daniel Nolan Design and author of Dry Gardens, High Style for Low Water Gardens, published in 2018 by Rizzoli Press and photographed by Caitlin Atkinson. In the opening to his book, Daniel notes that some of the most successful gardens are not about human control over nature, but about how humans respond respectfully to their surroundings. Daniel's work, which is consistently focused on strong design using as little water as possible, covers regions as wide-ranging as Florida, South Carolina, Louisiana, Texas, Arizona, California, and the West Coast generally. He joins us today from his home and garden in San Francisco's Bay Area. Daniel, I have followed your work for so many years and have been inspired by your design sense for so long. I am so pleased to be speaking with you today. Welcome. Well, thank you so much. That's such a kind introduction. So happy to speak with you. If I were to ask you, Daniel, at this particular point in your garden life, your design life, for a personal mission, for your personal relationship to the garden and to landscape design, what might that mission statement be today? You know, that's such an interesting question. I I, I, I don't like to use the word the low water route. I think that's just so easy. Um, but I would say I, I design very curated gardens that focus on blending uh, diverse species from Mediterranean climates, particularly Antipodean, but also California, uh, Mexico, Central America. And um, I, I really love to see that synergy between the different climates. And um, we're just very fortunate in the Bay Area that we are able to pull from so many different geographic areas. And um, yeah, I'm not the designer you go to if you want a rose garden. Um, And clients seem to be okay with that. (laughs) (laughs) So um, that makes me laugh because I have just been immersed in your wonderful book, uh, Dry Gardens. And um, so we will get into that a lot more deeply. First of all, uh, and, and you know the drill here, take us back a little bit. Who who were the places and people and plants that grew you uh, into a person for whom this would be your mission statement? Where were you born and raised and and who were these influences that that brought you to now? So I grew up, I was born in Chadsford, Pennsylvania. And I think because we're on the West Coast, it may not be as known or popular, but um, Chadsford is in the Brandywine Valley. And 
The Brandywine Valley is an area that's been nicknamed the garden capital of America. Um, we're very fortunate where we live um, just because of the natural beauty of the area, um, but also there was a lot of wealth from the DuPont family. So they created Longwood Gardens, Wintertour, Hagley, um, Nemours, all these essentially estates, um, and many of them are now open to the public. So I had that experience growing up. Um, the school bus would take me to my middle school and we would drive literally through Longwood Gardens on the way to school. Wow. Um, wow. You know, we would pass the, the Redwood Grove and then the meadow and it was beautiful to see it changing from September to June. And then when I went to high school, uh, my route to get to high school was literally through winter tour. And that was the sort of pastoral vision of early colonial American gardening. Um, and then my high school was behind Nemours, which is basically like a Versailles, petite Versailles, um, very formal French garden. Um, so to say I would not be influenced by that would be, you know, just insane. I had two eyes and this was all around me. Um, and then the other fact is that I grew up basically in the backyard of Andrew Wyeth and the Wyeth family. Um, they were my neighbors. So I would see Andy at the Wawa, the gas station. I'd see Helga. <laughs> I'd see Helga picking up her mail, you know, hoarding. Um, Carl Kerner was our neighbor. I mean, I, I lived in this very odd area with a lot of artists at the same time. So that was very different because seeing the process of the seasons and through that sort of aesthetic and being exposed to it at such a young age, but also seeing the sort of opulence and the range of garden design. Um, yeah, I always appreciated that duality. So that was, that was really my, my start in being very interested in my surroundings. I was a little sensitive gay kid growing up there and, you know, looking out the window was, you know, one of my favorite things to do. And I was always observing. And um, I owe that area a lot to my development. Yeah. Wow. The influence of your family was clearly part of encouraging you to notice such uh, environments, it sounds like, uh, in terms of taking you to museums or taking you to gardens. Were they gardeners themselves? So did you have the hands in the dirt experience <laughs> starting as, as a young man or, or how did that come about? Um, well, it's interesting. My father is an environmental engineer. He was, and he, um, was very mm -hmm. tied into, sort of the natural world. Um, his favorite yeah, thing would yeah. be to point out trees. He had a favorite tree <laughs> that he would always remark about every time he drove past it. So he was sensitive that way. And then my mother was in publishing. She was an editor. So she had a very sort of critical eye. Um, our home garden was not that, um, it, to me it was beautiful because we didn't have a lawn really. Um, everyone else in our tiny neighborhood had a lawn. Um, we really had as many trees as we could retain on the property close to the house. It was very wooded. They didn't like the sort of artificial look. And I think that influenced me a lot. And then 
my grandparents on one side, um, one was a farmer, sort of a gentry farmer, a country gentleman, I guess, I describe him now. And he was very quiet and subdued and, you know, maybe a little closed off, but very appreciative of, of the land. And then my other grandfather, um, he owned a cemetery, it designed a cemetery in South Carolina, and it was called South Carolina's Most Beautiful Memorial Garden. That was their slogan. And, I love it. I love it. And I always thought that was wonderful and something spooky and interesting. And I just have fond memories of him taking such pride in his gardens. So, yeah. yeah. Um, where in South Carolina, just out of curiosity? Sure. It's um, upstate South Carolina, about an hour south of Greenville, um, in okay. the country. The country. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you are this uh, observant plant-loving, garden-loving, sensitive, gay <laughs> young man in um, the Brandywine Valley, the, yeah, a, a seat for, for garden uh, largesse in our world, uh, in our U.S. world, for sure. How do you get from there to recognizing you want to be a landscape designer? And what is that path for you, Daniel? Um, yeah, I... I didn't really know how to formulate that sort of career in my mind. At first I thought I wanted to be in fashion and then I thought I wanted to be an architect. And um, I, I did love, I always loved plants, but I never recognized that as a career really. Um, what happened was I ended up going to art school and I picked the furthest school from Chatsworth. <laughs> so I landed, I landed in Los Angeles. And when I was there, I did everything but go to school, basically. And I really immersed myself in just the sort of new environment. I'd never been to the West Coast. I'd never lived in that area before. And I just remember living in Venice Beach starting to appreciate all these weird plants that were just everywhere and really just being taken with the forms and sort of alienness of of the environment and really what happened was i started gardening a little bit when i was living in california going to nurseries learning about plants um, just sort of by casually observing and then i moved back to South Carolina. My parents were like, you need to figure out what to do with your life. What is this going to look like? <laughs> and my dad sat me down and said, what is this gonna look like? And I said, I think I wanna do garden design. And he said, I will support you in whatever you want, whatever you want to do. Um, so how old are you at this point? About what year is this, I'm, Daniel? I, this is 2005 and I am 24. And it's just, you know, everyone in their mid-20s, you know. Every, if you haven't figured out at 24, you know, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he, it was very interesting. My, my first project was really my parents' garden. Um, they had just moved permanently down to the south. And they said, you know, fix our garden for us. And that... God, what a great opportunity. Yeah. yeah. And, and that led to 
me fixing a friend of theirs garden and another friend and another friend. And I really went in with a basic, you know, knowledge of horticulture and plants. I did the master gardeners program. Um, mm -hmm. I was probably the youngest in there by about 40 years. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I really just, I remember just being like, for the first time, everything clicked. Um, I pretty much memorized the Sunset Western Garden book. I read it back and forth, cover to cover. And so you, okay, so I, I want to I wanna get in here for just a second. Why are you using the Sunset Western Garden book in South Carolina at that point? Do, do you know why? I, it was the most comprehensive um, book that was sort of easily digestible at that point. Okay. I loved, yep. I loved it. And it also just, it didn't seem to be so focused on plants of the Southeast or something like that. It was much broader. But then um, I met Mike Durr, Professor Mike Durr, at a lecture and his book, The Ornamental, The Guide to Ornament, was it Ornamental? What are you ornamentals? Yeah, it, an iconic sort of Bible of a book in, in our world. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and his writing style of, you could tell if he was interested in a plant or not, um, because usually it would get into some personal detail or some sort of story about the providence of that <laughs> plant. And yeah. that book just transformed my appreciation and, and knowledge of plants. And um, I worked with him on one little project um, at a local university, at a local college campus, and he signed my copy and wrote oh. Plant Noble Trees. And it was, yeah, that was really when I fell in love um, and was confirmed that this was the right path for me. So, yeah, I owe, the, I owe these sort of experiences and just support to where I am today. Um, yeah. Well, and it's such a great, and, and you've, you will have heard me say this kind of thing before, but it's such clear affirmation from the universe that you are on the right path, right? You just keep getting these green lights um, to go this way, go this way. Now, you used a phrase there twice. Uh, my parents asked me to fix their garden and then I went to fix someone else's garden. <laughs> what do you, what do we mean by this? And, and, yeah. and are you already starting to play in this, you know, quote fixing with what is going to become sort of a characteristic palette for you? That's such an interest. Wow. That's such a perceptive observation. Um, yes. And I feel like my, my job description could be garden designer, fixer, you know, <laughs> slash fixer. Um, a lot of times I don't inherit the property when it's at its inception. I inherit it when it is, you know, maybe down the road. And, and mm -hmm. this is sort of what happened. They had a very cookie cutter um, sort of basic garden, not really designed with any real sense of style, just traditional, you know, sort of, I would say foundation plantings. And we really pulled almost everything out or redistributed so much of the plant material that it really changed um, the layout and, and the feel of the space. And I was also coming from California where I was saying like, 
you know, I don't understand why do we have to continue using, you know, privets as foundation plants? Why can't we use grasses? Why can't we use, um, I don't know, yucca? Why can't we use plants that are maybe a little bit more exciting? And uh, my, my parents were very game to, to let me experiment. And their house really became um, sort of like a, a business card for me. And then yeah. the next... Oh, I hope you have pictures to share of this garden. Do you? <laughs> I, do, I think I do. I, oh, I, I hope definitely you do. took a lot of photos when I lived in South Carolina. But I... Um, yeah, and, and then the, uh, the next project was sort of the same. It was a friend of my parents that said, you know, we have a rather conventional garden. And if we gave you some money, would you be able to rescue it? And we did a sort of um, Jacques Wirtz-inspired front yard we removed all of their grass um instead of boxwoods we did the um we, we did a native holly yopon hollies and clipped them into sort of atmospheric sort of clouds and and it's still there today 12 years later um it looks beautiful yeah i, I was just very fortunate to sort of have a community there that was very supportive of my early design sensibility this is Cultivating Place. Daniel Nolan is owner of Daniel Nolan Design and author of Dry Gardens, High Style for Low Water Gardens. His work and our conversation today reminds us that you can have a low water use garden and still enjoy strong design and beautiful, even lush looking high style. We'll be right back after a break with more from Daniel. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners like you and by support from the American Horticultural Society. As the AHS turns 100, their focus on quality horticultural information, integrating science, education, social responsibility, environmental stewardship, community, and joy is more relevant and more needed and more wanted than ever and more sought after than ever. Make sure to check out some of their upcoming outstanding programs, including their October Virtual Garden Market, kicking off October 4th, and their Conversations with Great American Gardeners. Now, this is a correction from last week when I mentioned that the Conversations with Great American Gardeners kicks off on October 10th. Correction. It kicks off on October 8th with the remarkable plantswoman, Karen Washington. This is absolutely one to mark on your calendars and register for. Members receive a discount on all programs of the AHS, and listeners of Cultivating Place receive a $10 discount on annual individual membership to the AHS. So, for your annual membership to the American Horticultural Society for the special cultivating place rate of just $25 a year, head on over to www.ahsgardening.org forward slash CP. And while you're there, make sure to register for the October 8th Conversations with Great American Gardeners starting with 
gardener, political, and community food justice advocate, Karen Washington. I'll see you there. We're going to love it. Hey, it's Jennifer. I really have to laugh at myself sometimes, actually very often, and that may not be how you think of me. I know I have a tendency to be really serious, very earnest, and that is definitely an important aspect to me as a human and as a gardener, but it's certainly not all of me. I'm one of those people who looks through photo-rich books like Daniel Nolan's and sees tidy interiors or highly formal or architectural gardens, gardens with the structure and strength and clean, sophisticated garden bones and lines like Daniel Nolan's garden designs. And I think, oh, oh, that's it. I love that. Minimal, clean, spare, the serenity of several harmonious shades of just a few colors, white, green, earthen, I should try for that. I will try for that. (laughs) Fast forward about one week and I'm back at my higgledy-piggledy, too many colors, too many plants, all pretty low water use, in too many configurations. The hodgepodge of a deeply beloved, sometimes neglected, but always adored, and rich mashup of a suburban home garden which I know is fine. In fact, I find it beautiful because I know that the best lesson for me in the appeal and powerful takeaways of Daniel's design mastery is not about meeting his perfection or his eye perfectly, but it's in his eye gently nudging me out of a box which says gardens look this way or gardens use this much water or other resource that says gardens that don't use excessive water look messy, look wild or untended, that gardens without flowers look boring. His nudging me even a little towards greater understanding, greater thinking, greater comprehension, that high style and dry and even my garden rummage aesthetic They all have some things in common. Things like a love of plants, a love of thoughtful gardeners, an embrace of lifelong learning, and a deep appreciation for gardeners who contribute and grow lightly on this land. A love and appreciation of every kind of diversity in this garden life. So thank you, Daniel. Thank you to my own garden, Thank you to all of you gardeners out there cultivating your places. Keep growing. We're back now to our conversation with Daniel Nolan, owner of Daniel Nolan Design and author of Dry Gardens, High Style for Low Water Gardens. Of Daniel's work, plant and nurserywoman Flora Grubb says... Quote, Daniel's gardens challenge the common perception still so prevalent in garden culture that gardens are mainly for flowers or edible use. Daniel makes using less water a beautiful feature of, not a nuisance in, creating gardens that satisfy our deepest joys. 
end quote. As we come back to our conversation, Daniel shares more on his plant life journey to working and designing at Flora Grub Gardens in San Francisco. It is an icon of low water, high style plant love. Somehow you you get from this earliest iteration of you as a as a style maker garden designer fixer of gardens <laughs> and rescuing them from conventionality and overgrowth and boringness <laughs> and you you how do you get to the bay area take us on the next step of your journey uh, sure so it was 2008 and um my boyfriend at the time was living in San Francisco. And he said, you know, there's this woman that opened a store and I think you and her would really hit it off. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I, I had just finished a really large project in South Carolina. And I just said to my parents, you know, I think it's time for me to go back to California. I, I love South Carolina. This is my adopted home now, but it's time for me to go back. And I went back to, I went to San Francisco, this time, Northern California, and I was introduced to Flora. And she had just opened the store, I think it had been open for about maybe a year and a half. And I had probably the worst timing in history because it was the summer of 2008. And I, oh. it was, a, I think it was probably two months after the, um, the stock market crashed. Yeah. And they were so polite to me. They said, we absolutely want you to work here, but we can only give you part-time. And I think they gave me like 12 hours a week. And I said, I'll do it. Fine. And that's how I got in at Flora Grub. Um, I was working there part-time. Um, checking first, just basically making sure no one stole the cash register um, and checking people <laughs> out. And then it turned into, I think it's time for you to check plants in and supervise deliveries. And that was sort of the, I would sort of say like my freshman year at Flora Grub because it was really like the truck has shown up. Now you have to identify and count all of these plants that have arrived. So if you didn't know Karokia from Kufia, you know, you're in trouble. And I learned on the spot, you know, hundreds of plant species right away. And there was no time to run to the computer and, and check. It was check the tag, look at the plant, count, okay, move on to the next, and have almost a photographic memory because the next week it would be the same, but totally different. Um, right. Now, I'm going to stop us here for just a second because there will be many listeners, Daniel, who don't know who Flora Grub is or what the Flora Grub Garden Nursery and its kind of genre in this world of nurseries, what that is. So so maybe give a little, uh, you know, your understanding of its history and describe it a little because I can't imagine a more perfectly matched plantsman with a more perfect nursery for you <laughs> than um, your aesthetic and flora grubs uh, really it was a it was a really revelation of a of a nursery at the time that it opened I think yeah 
Um, so Flora Grubb, I believe, opened in like 2006, I believe, um, around that time. And it is not just a nursery. It was a sort of outdoor living lifestyle store. Um, they sold plant material, but they also sold furniture. They had a cafe. Um, it was a place where people, it was a destination, really. And, yep. and still, still is. is. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. Yeah. they specialized in unusual plants, particularly palms, but succulents, cactus. I mean, it's not just conventional sort of bedding plants and, and things you can find at most nurseries. So it was, it was very unusual, very curated. I think this is true of your style as well. It has a, a a lovely modernist feel. It has a fresh feel. It's very, um, there are plenty of flowers, but it's very foliage uh, uh, centric, yeah. I would say. Sculptural, big, bold. And often it's a look that's beautiful. Not all of their plants will translate to the hardiness zones of the rest of the world, but the style can if you adapt those plant varieties. I think that's fair to say. All right. So you you are here, you are developing this incredible encyclopedic knowledge of these sometimes tropical, but but sometimes not tropical, but interesting and unusual plants uh, being, uh, you know, presented to to the uh, the wider public mm -hmm. in in some new ways there at Flora Grub. Keep us going. So at this point at Flora Grub, I think I had been there, I was there almost 10 years, I believe. I think it was close to nine years. And this is sort of the beginning. So I've graduated from shop girl <laughs> to, um, <laughs> to inventory checker salesperson. And not only now did I have to know what these plants looked like, but I had to know what their attributes were. Um, so if someone came to me and said, how tall does this grow? I could give them information. And I learned a lot just from being with such a knowledgeable staff but also, I, I just, if there was something that caught my eye, I would just research and just go deep into, you know, all sorts of corners of the internet, looking for things about this plant. And that was really exciting for me as a guard, as now I'm starting to do small projects in the Bay Area and pick up a, a client base here. I, I was very excited to use this new palette of plants. Yeah. And... And then after that, what happened was um, Flora said, you know, if anyone has been to Flora Grub, you know that the store is not laid out in a traditional nursery pattern. Um, things were arranged in groups and really arranged by groups of appropriateness. So full sun groups, um, maybe light shade groups, shade, and then certain textures and everything. So the challenge was every week the plants would come and Flora would say, okay, now create a garden, create a vignette out of this material. And, and that was my third job there. So now I'm doing the merchandising. Um, I, I love to think of this, like, as you're talking, I'm like, 
Daniel is working up in the levels of green belts. <laughs> so, you know, you have like the fresh green of spring and then you're getting into yeah. the, the, I don't know, darker greens or something <laughs> as you, as you work your way up. Yeah. This is, I would say this is sort of like my junior year, my sophomore, junior year. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what I'm doing at this point is I am creating um, miniature gardens, often like on the spot, you know, there was a general plan, but you know, it was, okay, this has all come in, all this material, break it up, divide it, and create some gardens. And not only are going to be practical, but are gonna be attractive enough to sell. And what was so affirming was that people would come in and just sometimes buy the entire block, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, and that was doing garden design times 20 every day for a week, you know, just, really immersive and I, I just don't know if you could even teach that in classes um in university nope no it's apprenticeship it's apprenticeship at the highest level mm -hmm. and um and it's that learning by doing and I hope anyone out there who's listening who has any you know interest in this kind of education is is their ears are are tingling right now because uh, it, it might have been 12 hours and it might not have been the greatest pay, but it was the greatest education oh. for what you were headed towards. Oh. Yeah. Well, yeah. So hopefully, well, so now we're a little bit out of the recession. I think I've made it full-time employee at this point. Thank, thank <laughs> God. Good thank job. God. Um, my parents were getting worried, but, but um, yeah, they, it was, it was not challenging, but it was so, it was very exciting because every day was just, what are we going to make, you know? And I'm a competitive person. So doing it the best is, and doing it right is always, um, yeah, very, very uh, appealing to me. So um, then I would say the senior year is, I had my own small design business. I'm picking up clients at the store. Um, I'm talking to them. I'm working on their projects you know, my spare time. And Flora says to me, um, Daniel, I, I think this is a position that could be created at the store. So we're going to make a design department for you. You are going to bring in your clients here. You are going to use our plant material. And then your process is to find the contractors, find the installers and install these gardens with our material. And then you're also going to do, you know, our merchandising, three days of the week. So to have that opportunity to have a sort of foundations was really, um, yeah, I, I think like you said, the universe saying you're on the right path. And that turned into two days a week to then full time. And I was um, the design department at Floor Grub for probably four years. And um, that was that was my introduction. That was my my graduation from Florida Grip at that point. So, as you are learning this new and expansive plant palette, at what point does it become apparent to you that the low water you were you were talking about in your original mission statement, where does this come into how you design a garden? And I and I ask this because, you know, to have been raised in um, the Brandywine Valley, 
and then to go to South Carolina. Neither of these places strike me as uh, places that are, you know, routinely concerned with how much water they use or what their irrigation systems are doing. Whereas when you moved to Los Angeles, you essentially moved to a desert, although most of the city doesn't perhaps know that. And, um, and again, when you moved to the San Francisco Bay Area, again, it's it's far moister than the, you know, than much of the state of California, but it is still relatively low water uh, in terms of its annual precipitation. When does the use of water and or resource use in general start to be high on your radar, Daniel? Um, that's interesting. I, I think because... My aesthetic in general is just, I want things to be simpler, lower maintenance. Mm -hmm. um, the nature of low water plants really spoke to me. And I think coming into it, I just associated with all low water plants being cactus. And, <laughs> you know, moving here and learning about proteaceous Australian plants, plants from you know, zero plants from alpine areas perhaps, but you know, the range of it, not just being cactus was really just sort of mind blowing for me. And that was the palette that I wanted to work with. Um, and, you know, if clients were, were saying, you know, oh, I want, I don't know, I, I want more Bal Balinese or I want more tropical, I would, I would say like, I probably just not, the right designer for you. And I, I really just wanted to design with what I was interested in. And mm -hmm. I, I think that just sort of became a little bit of my reputation when I was at the store. And, you know, salespeople would just sort of say like to someone coming in, oh, you should go speak to Daniel. Or, you know, Daniel knows this plant, he's got the right information for you. And it, it came about very, I would say so naturally um, without any sort of plan. And next thing I know, I'm the, you know, the, the succulent low water gardener of a <laughs> floor grub. And I think that was just my, my, I guess my calling. It was what I was interested in and people responded to that. This is Cultivating Place. Daniel Nolan is the owner of Daniel Nolan Design, and he is the author of Dry Gardens, High Style for Low Water Gardens. We'll be right back after a break with more from Daniel. Stay with us. So thinking out loud this week, I've really enjoyed the previous three weeks of Cultivating Place conversations, exploring some of the intersections between our seasonal natures, and our spiritual natures. I had a wonderful communication with a listener out of the Ohio, Kentucky region this last week about our conversation with Rabbi Arthur Waskow and the celebration of Sukkot, and how this felt to her as a Jewish listener, like a somewhat deterritorialized conversation that missed the importance of the ties between Judaism and its festivals with the actual physical, historical, and present place and plants of the land of Israel. 
I so appreciated this nuanced and insightful critique that opened me to a different perspective. And it got me thinking back to some of our conversations over these many years with the likes of a Buddhist gardener in the Bay Area of California, with indigenous ecologist Robin Wall Kimmerer, with Chinese heritage culinary gardener Wendy Kiang Spray, with indigenous seed keeper Rowan White and Palestinian heritage seed keeper Vivian Sansor, and African heritage plantswomen Leah Penniman, Ira Wallace, Jamaica Kincaid, and Yolanda Burrell. It lands really hard in my gut that many of us are deterritorialized as gardeners, even while we cultivate the territory we now find ourselves on. I have no answers to this to not only the richness of this now interwoven tapestry of gardeners, but also no answers to the many, many griefs and wounds and atrocities inherent in it. One of my own takeaways circles back to the wisdom of these same plants people, articulated in different ways, but still a shared wisdom, that when we as gardeners and our gardens in the places we find ourselves currently, incorporate honor to the land and the people of the land we are on now, and honor to the best of the legacy of our own ancestors, it is then that we find the possibility that we can really honor the territory literally the soil of our deepest genetic connection without harming the terra firma or the lives that live on it where we find ourselves now. If you have thoughts or examples of how you think about this or actually take this on in practice as a gardener far from your one or many ancestral homelands, I would so love to hear about it. You know how. Send me an email, cultivatingplace at gmail.com. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're back now to our conversation with Daniel Nolan, author of Dry Gardens, High Style for Low Water Gardens. As anyone who has ever struggled with a garden in very dry conditions, no matter if you're in Australia, in the United Kingdom, on the eastern seaboard of the U.S., the Deep South, or the recurrently summer dry and often extended drought-prone U.S. West, you will know the dilemmas of creating a garden that looks not just alive, but looks great in such dry conditions. In a world where the excessive use of especially potable water on any non-food producing landscape is less and less acceptable or wise, how we use or use less water in the garden is an extremely important consideration and conversation. As we come back Daniel describes much more about what his highly curated and designed low water gardens actually look like and consist of. It's so, it's so interesting. Um, probably one of my first projects that got a lot of attention 
Um, it's now almost instantaneous when you Google it. Just type in modern cactus garden and this vignette will pop up because it's been photographed so often. I mean, I told people I should have trademarked the combination of plants because I'd be, <laughs> be rich. Um, but, but what was interesting, it was a front entry and it was just three plants. It was very simple. It was um, Fucrea mcduglii, which is a tall, um, upright, sort of, I described it as like a vase-shaped succulent, very spiky, so elongated, almost agave-like leaves. And then at the base was agave blue glow, which is a more, more sort of like half-dome, sort of rounded blue agave that has red margins. And then the plant that was sort of the unifying um, plant was the ground cover, and that was a sedum angelina, so just yellow. Mm. So it was yeah. three plants, and it was against a stucco wall, against a very modern, beautiful house. And that was one of my first projects. Um, and then there was an entire garden attached to it, but that was used, I think, in, it was used in Martha Stewart. It's been used in books. It's in my own book. Um, and, and that really became almost like the calling card for, for my business. And what's so interesting is I, it, it was such an easy combination for me. Um, but I think what was so striking about it was that it was so simple and so restrained. And I think those two words are really, um, I think, indicative of, of my design taste. Yeah, yeah. And the, the lushness is achieved not by a lot of herbaceous material, but by a lot of structural, sculptural variations on the idea of green that you just described, mm -hmm. which is a very particular look. And, and one of the things that strikes me as I, well, first of all, as I look at your book, I, you know, it, I, I am, what would it, what would, how would I describe myself as a gardener? Kind of a neglectful gardener with everything kind of mushed up together. So I'll have, you know, I have beautiful native grass next to iceberg rose next to like, I don't know, a peony because I couldn't figure out where else to put that peony. And anyway, yours have this serenity to them that is very compelling, um, especially in our hectic world or in maybe a small space or maybe in a, a, an urban environment. I don't know, but it, it is very compelling. And, um, and it doesn't rely on flowers all the time. <laughs> and so one of the things that I ask myself when I look at the pictures of your garden, and this is in no way like a critique or an, or it, it's just a question is, are the people that you work with for this kind of garden, are they generally like out in the garden, in the dirt kind of gardeners? Um, so I think now my, my, my business has obviously shifted. Um, I've become a little bit more well-known in the area. My, my gardens are not, um, what's, what's the right word? The, the scale of my projects are large. Um, they're complicated in a lot of ways, just in terms of access and sites and things like that. Um, but they're also mm -hmm. not very humble. I mean, I, I, I don't do a lot of 
you know, sowing from seeds. Um, I'm not growing edibles. I'm not growing things for commercial value. That puts me in a different category as a designer, um, particularly mm-hmm. with the clients that I interact with. Um, and for a lot of my clients, it is, I want to look out my window and see a painting every day. Um, and, and that's, and I appreciate that because um, that's, that's very hard to do. And that's also, I feel like something I, I would want as well. So I see that. Um, and as someone that's, you know, I live in an urban area, I, I don't have a lot of room to grow edible things or I have a very difficult backyard. I don't have a lot of room for flowers. I wanna look down on a painting. So my whole garden, my backyard by 200 square feet is all of Aurelia's basically. It's all palmate leaves. It's no flowers. Um, And every morning I look down on it and it's extremely gratifying and serene. And um, that's kind of what I wanna look at. I don't wanna look at uh, the roses need deadheading or that that shrub is looking sad. You know, I, I want to look at something that has seasonality to it, but overall consistent. And what I what I do am absolutely um, struck by when I look at the the photographs of your gardens is they don't yell at me. No. They're they're it, like it. It's not a garden that's saying I need this right now. I need this right now. I need this mm-hmm. right now. And so you can have this um, serenity, but also kind of a, a a little bit more of a hands off but still engaged relationship with it that that is that is there's something nice about that yeah i, I think um I, I don't love gardens that are very tortured or clipped or feel like they have to be fussed over um and i think that at the end of the day people just want to sit on their porch and enjoy the view or you know walk around the garden and and appreciate the, the texture and not feel burdened um, by, by the garden. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's there is a there is a lovely strength to to your designs um, that I I find uh, really captivating. And you, I, I love when I am looking at your work, and I I like the color variations you include with some of these cacti and and succulents. Uh, but I also like the movement you get with the grasses and the seasonality with those. Um, and of course, a lot of these succulents and cacti do have fabulous blooms mm-hmm. when when they come. Right. So, um, yeah, yeah, I say that my to my clients, I'm like, well, almost everything in flowers, ultimately, um, except for ferns. Um, but you know, most plants are going to have a flower at some point. I think for me, it's just not designing for a week in August or, you know, <laughs> Memorial Day. So if a client's coming to me and they're saying, you know, I really need to have this looking, you know, perfect for August. I say like, oh God, you know, what are we going to do the other 11th months of the year? That's, that's not how my brain works. So, um, and I usually say flowers are sort of the surprise elements. They're sort of the gift. Um, yeah, so that I, I'd rather design around plant architecture and form versus the bloom, the flower. Yeah. 
when you when you look at your gardens and you look at the um, their particular aesthetic and and beauty in our current world today, what what is what is your greatest joy and and how do you measure success with a garden that you've created, Daniel? Oh wow, how do I measure success? Um, I <laughs> you know I because of the pandemic. Um, I have received so many emails from clients that I haven't spoken to or interacted with, you know, in, in months or years who have said to me, you know, having this garden has just been a lifesaver. It's, it's just changed the way I've, I've felt about my home, my home or my property. And, you know, I think being so busy with life, uh, prevented a lot of my clients from seeing that. And now I'm getting the feedback that, you know, I just, I love my garden. I'm, I really just want you to know that. So I measure success that way. And then I also measure success with, I drive past a lot of my gardens that have, you know, maybe fallen into neglect or it's a new owner. That happens a lot. You know, the houses, people move and they kept the garden um, or the garden is thriving under different circumstances, different conditions. Um, I, I find that just very, very affirming. And, and you know, I, I don't necessarily feel like I had to throw my name all over something. But if I drive past it and I can say, that's a Daniel Nolan garden, and I can tell, that's, that's wonderful. So, yeah. <laughs> when you, you know, when you think about the kind of highlight for, um, of gardens in this last year and, uh, you know, how gardens might help us meet some of these larger urgencies in our world, whether that's social justice or um, loss of habitat. And um, where do you see your gardens fitting in in those kinds of cultural um, intersections? Well, that's interesting. Um, you know, because of who I am, I, I, again, I look at a lot of my projects and a lot of my clients. And because of the budgets that I have, I deal with a particularly like a particular group of, of society. And what's interesting is that I, I think the last year, I have really looked around and said, other than well, a few people, everyone kind of looks like me um, in this, in the design world, in the, the construction world. And I, I find that very kind of jarring. Um, my husband, he works for a company under the Google umbrella and he's a recruiter for um, engineers and scientists from HBCUs and historically Hispanic serving institutions, trying to get them into roles. Um, in Google companies. And I think what's interesting is that most of my contractors, the ones that I work with, I work with a team of about three or four different contractors. Um, these are all Latino. They're all minority-owned businesses. And I really, I really advocate for them. Um, they make my job possible. I would not have the career I have without them. And it's very personal for me to not only grow my business, but to grow their business. 
And I, I think that is something I try very hard to do. Um, and giving back, um, I donate to a lot of um, a lot of groups and coalitions that ascribe to my values. But then, you know, there's other groups out there like the National Association of Minority Architects, um, Black in the Garden podcast is another podcast I listen to all the time. They've introduced me to so many people to follow. Leslie Bennett's Black Sanctuary Gardens in Oakland. Um, you know, those are causes I really believe in. And I, I think it's not just sort of trying to get support in terms of like, follow this person on social media. It is actually, let us donate resources or give projects to these designers and groups um, because that's ultimately what's going to improve everyone's lives. Make the, make the, you know, make the journey more interesting. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so flattered. Thank you. It's wonderful. <laughs> Daniel Nolan is a horticulturalist, a gardener, and a garden designer whose work is consistently focused on strong design using as little water as possible. His designs can be found in regions as wide-ranging as Florida, South Carolina, Louisiana, Texas, Arizona, California, and the West Coast generally. He is the owner of Daniel Nolan Design and the author of Dry Gardens, High Style for Low Water Gardens, published in 2018 by Rizzoli Press and photographed by Caitlin Atkinson. In the opening to his book, Daniel notes that some of the most successful gardens are not about humans' control over nature, but about how humans respond respectfully to their surroundings. Join us again next week when we are joined by photographer, gardener, and wise water use advocate, Saxon Holt, whose books include Plants and Landscapes for Summer Dry Climates, and most recently, Gardening in Summer Dry Climates, both co-creations with Nora Harlow. Listen in next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you at cultivatingplace.com and by support from the American Horticultural Society. To read more about and see many images from Daniel Nolan's high-style, low-water garden design, head over to cultivatingplace.com where you will find this week's episode show notes, as always, under the podcast tab. Does this topic or does this week's Cultivating Place conversation expand your gardening sense? If so, let us know. Send us a note or better yet, let other people know by sharing the program and the podcast with them. Your neighbors, your garden friends, strangers waiting with you in the grocery store checkout line. Word of mouth is how this garden program grows. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler and producer and development director Sarah Bohannon. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public 
Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. 